Our Father, we thank you that you get us through life. We thank you that through the chapters of life, you are there for us, even before we know you. You've got your eye upon us. You know us by name. You have an intentional purpose for us. You have a plan. And at a certain point, we'll hear the gospel, and our blind eyes are open, and your spirit is at work to regenerate us so that we can respond to the good news that Jesus, who was God and without sin, came and took our penalty, and he went to the cross, and the wrath, the just wrath of God the Father, which we deserved, instead of coming upon us, you took upon yourself in our behalf. May we never get over that. May we never take that for granted. May we never be, uh, fail to be astonished by it. Uh, uh, old things pass away. All things become new. Now that we're spiritually alive and the Spirit of God lives within us and we have eyes to see. And we begin this journey. We begin this trail of life through the various chapters, through the uh, good times and through the hard times, bad times, summer evil times, the times that uh, thrill us and the times that blindside us, the uh, times where, gosh, a goal is realized, uh, a, a hope is fulfilled. And then there are also the times when we are stunned by something we just didn't see coming. Um, we always thought our health would be there, and suddenly it's threatened. This is the trail of life. We thank you that we are not in this by ourselves. We thank you that you are in front of us. You are behind us. You are on each flank. You are above us, and you are underneath. Underneath are the everlasting arms, and when we fall, you're there to catch us. Our lives are in your hands, and with this many men, we have probably an equal number of guys that are experiencing some really good days right now, and then we have some other guys, and they're in tough chapters. So we look to you. We need you in the good times and the bad times. We need you all the time. Don't let us get so full of ourselves that we think we've got this figured out, because we don't. We need you. We need your wisdom. We need your help to watch over our hearts, for from our hearts flow the wellsprings of life. 
We're living in troubled times. But you have a sure word for us to navigate us through as we live our lives, as we give leadership to our homes. Our eyes are on you. And you've never failed. We trust you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began this new semester on uh, biblical economics, for lack of a better term. Uh, I'm going to review a little bit as we start, and, and probably each session of this study on the Ten Commandments, I'll do a little bit of review just because this whole issue of the law and the gospel can be a little bit confusing. I started last week kind of tongue-in-cheek. I said our topic for this semester is overcoming hyperinflation, overcoming the threat of hyperinflation by returning to the gold standard that was in place prior to 1913. And guys started applauding. They were just overwhelmed with with the truth we were going to uncover. Uh, thought it might get somebody's attention. That was not the topic, but the topic that we are going after this time around is overcoming the hyperinflation of sin and lawlessness which surrounds us by returning to the gold standard of the Ten Commandments. I mentioned last week I had a phone conversation with my tax attorney, had talked with him in a number of years, and left him a message. He called me back, and before we got into my issue, and if you were here, you remember this, he said, so Steve, before we get going, and we hadn't talked in nine years probably, he said, so, all that's going on, all that's happening in our world, all that's happening in our country, the, uh, the division, the animosity, uh, the corruption, the, you know, he's going on and on. He said, Jesus is still in control, right? And I know him well enough that if I w had been FaceTiming him, I would have seen a little smile. He knows that. But even if you're deeply rooted, at times you wonder, what is going on? Because we are living... In 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones said to his congregation in London, he said, we are living in days of exceptional evil. Most of us would cut off our arms to get back to 1959. This is unthinkable. It was C.S. Lewis who said, the most dangerous ideas in society are not the ones that are being argued, but the ones that are assumed. We used to, in this nation, the Ten Commandments were assumed. The Ten Commandments, and we said this last week, if you're 50 or older, you remember when the Ten Commandments uh, 
were in classrooms. You remember when the Ten Commandments were memorized. You remember, and a lot of you can still quote the Ten Commandments if you're in that age bracket, but there was a shift and there was a change. And so instead of what we had for couple hundred years in this country. And it's interesting that when you look at the rise and fall of great nations, if you look at uh, Toynbee and some of his work, he'll talk about, and I can't remember, I'm doing this off the top of my head, the 24, maybe 22, maybe 26, I can't remember. But great civilizations in history, they, they tend to last about on the long side, about 250 years before they collapse, usually internally. I'll let you do the math. I had a conversation a few days ago with my friend Larry Libby. We've, uh, we've worked together on six different books that I've done. He's a, just a wonderful editor done a lot of books for Chuck as well. And we, last time we worked on a book was almost 10 years ago. But we're going to work on a project here. And uh, we were talking and we're on the phone with the publisher, had a conference call, and then got that done. And we hung up, and then I called him right back. Hey, what'd you think of that? How did that go? You know, we're just putting our heads together, debriefing. And at a certain point, you know, He said, Steve, I'll tell you what, a lot's happened since we worked together last time. I said, I'd say, man. He said, did you ever think you'd seen anything like this, what's going on right now? I said, I, you know, it's staggering. He, he said, it's like, he said, I'll tell you how I feel. I, I, I feel like a, a heaviness, there's a spirit of the Antichrist. I said, man, that adds up. Let me tell you why that adds up. Let me give you a few verses. In Matthew, 25, uh, Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said, and this isn't a direct quote, but in the last days, because he was telling the disciples what's going to happen, he said, in the last days, lawlessness will increase. Lawlessness has increased. No doubt about it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, they were disturbed. They thought perhaps the Lord, the rapture had occurred. They'd missed it. And Paul writes to encourage them. And he said, no, no. No, not yet. And then he referred to the Antichrist, who was known as the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. He will be... I mean, that's how he's known. <laughs> the man of lawlessness. That man who is going to unite the whole world... And there's going to be one world government. And he's going to try and pull off a rebellion against the Lord God Almighty. As you know, 
since we've seen the trailer in advance, we can read the script. Uh, he's going to be defeated. And, uh, but he's a man of lawlessness. Then you've got in 1 John 2, verse 8, John says, many antichrists have gone out into the world. Not the antichrist, but antichrist, uh, who are lawless. Uh, he said, uh, speaking, he, he says of some who were in the church, they went out from us because they were not of us. We thought they were the real deal, but they weren't. That's why they left. Lawlessness. Two principles from last week. Number one. The Ten Commandments are the gold standard of ethics and law because they are based on the character of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That means absolute moral purity. God is holy, God is good. Is it 119, Psalm 119, 68? Somewhere in there. The Lord is good and does good. God can't do evil. He uses evil, but God cannot, God cannot sin. God cannot lie. The Bible doesn't say that God doesn't lie. It says he can't lie. Why? Because it is character. So, the Ten Commandments are the gold standard because they are based on the character of God. Romans 9 says that there is no injustice with God. He cannot be unjust. Now, there will be times when we look around, maybe it's something that's happened to us or someone we love, and we're shocked and we're stunned, and it seems like God has been unjust. But he can't be unjust. He can't do it because of who he is. So the Ten Commandments are the gold standard of ethics and law because they are based on the character of God. Secondly, from last week, when any individual or nation departs from the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods beside me, They abandon the gold standard, and much evil results. So you depart from God, you depart from God's standard, you get away from it, evil is going to increase. Lawlessness is going to increase. It's going to hyperinflate. You get away from the gold standard of God and his word and his character, and what he has said to us, like money in Venezuela, it's going to hyperinflate evil, lawlessness, sin. And this is what we're seeing. This is what we're sensing. It's all around us. It concerns us because 
we're concerned about how it would affect our families, our kids, our grandkids. Sure. Makes sense. A little more review. Won't take long on this. Figuring out how the law and the gospel work together is a workout. Uh, it, it, uh, it's, so let's try, to, uh, let's try to cliff note it, all right? So in Exodus 20, God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, has him come up to Sinai, and he gives him two tablets. And he writes these commandments on the tablets, and he is making a covenant with Moses, who is the leader of Israel, and he's making a covenant with Israel. Um, so Exodus 20 is, is important. He comes down with the Ten Commandments. But then there are going to be additional truths, laws revealed to Moses that he will write down. Uh, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. So you got Genesis, you got Exodus, and in Exodus 20, God says, come on up here, and I'm going to give you this, these Ten Commandments. But then... You have Genesis, Exodus, you have Leviticus, which is, that's a boring book <laughs> at 4 a.m. When you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, that's tough. That's tough stuff because you got all these little nitpicking requirements that you set the, uh, just read it. And it's all you can do to not fall asleep. But if you were a Levitical priest who was given the responsibility of standing before God and making these sacrifices, your eyes are wide open because you wanted to live. And if you minimized it, or scoffed at it, or shortcutted it. There were two guys named Nadab and Abihu, and they, uh, they, they flaunted. They, they, were, uh, they were frauds. They said the words with their hearts. Uh, they offered strange fire, and God killed them. He's a holy God. Oh, you say, well, that's not fair. Really? Really? They broke that which they clearly knew and understood, and they broke it. Many times. Many times. Well, that just doesn't seem right. Was God unjust? No, he was just. 
We've gotten, we've gotten to a point in our evangelical culture, we, uh, we kind of presume that God is always going to be merciful. And most of the time, he is. He's abundant in loving kindness and mercy. But sometimes we're shocked when God is just. But when God's just, he hasn't done anything wrong. He's just been just. Never ask God for justice. <laughs> you don't want justice, you want mercy. So do I. So you break up the law. You break up the law, and I can't spend too much time on this. But you take the law, Old Testament law. There are three aspects to it. There was the civil law, because Israel was a nation, and God had laws for the nation of Israel. And he had his reasons for those laws. Some make no sense to us. Are, are those laws that should be transferred to the United States of America or wherever country you live in? No. Those laws were for Israel because God had a specific purpose, and he does have a purpose for the nation of Israel. They were civil laws. Sometimes you got different laws in Dallas County as opposed to Collin County or Denton County. They might be close, but they're not exactly the same. Those are civil laws. Then you got ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws, like all the uh, stipulations on how the priests were to offer sacrifices and offerings and all of that, and Jesus fulfilled the civil law and the ceremonial law. We don't have to. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus fulfilling the ceremonial law. Uh, then you have, thirdly, the moral law. The moral law is what is contained in the Ten Commandments. So the civil law that's in Old Testament law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, that's not for us. Jesus fulfilled it. In fact, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He fulfilled the Old Testament law, jot and till, completely, fully. Okay, but then you have the moral law. Here's the deal about the moral law. The moral law was in existence before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. So how could it be in existence? Because he had written his law on the hearts of every human being. You can find that in Romans, what is it, chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. So someone that doesn't, have a Bible or live in a country where the gospel is proclaimed, they know the law of God because he's written it on their hearts. That's in Romans 1 and it's in Romans 2. The moral law is for all people in all cultures in all times from creation until the end. The moral law is the moral law of God. It's the Ten Commandments. We're not under civil law of the Old Testament. We're not under ceremonial. We're under moral law, uh, the Ten Commandments, because the law existed before it was written on the stone. So you could look at different individuals in the Old Testament and, and show how different individuals in Genesis, they broke that law. They broke the Seventh Commandment. They broke the Third. They broke the Tenth Commandment. They, they were all broken. And they knew it was wrong because it was on their hearts. 
Then you get into the New Testament, New Covenant. The Law of Moses is Old Covenant stuff. New Covenant is what Jesus has brought in. And you've got the Ten Commandments restated in different ways by either Jesus or the apostles in Scripture. Uh, Let him who steals, steal no longer, Paul says. So you got the moral law from creation all the way till the end. The moral law is in existence. It's the law of God for you, me, everyone on the face of the earth. By the way, we can't fulfill that either. Have you noticed that? Have you picked up on that yet? We can't do it. So what did Jesus do? He not only went to the cross to die for our sins, but he fulfilled the law for us. And when we sin, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what the law does in summary, is the law, the law is good. Uh, In Galatians, Paul says, the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. The law, which I can't keep, drives me to Jesus, who is my Savior. And I go to him, and I'm forgiven. Okay. The quiz on Friday. I'm going to go over that a few more times because... That brings up a lot of questions. Now tonight, I want to give you three more principles based out of Deuteronomy 4 and 5. Okay? So you've got the Ten Commandments, not only in Exodus 20, but in Deuteronomy 5. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy means, uh, it's deuteronomos, it means second law. Moses is restating the second law for a new generation whose fathers did not trust in God and believe in God, and they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So you get into Deuteronomy 5. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. And then he, um, at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. So when... The 12 spies went to check out the land. Remember that? Uh, The 12 spies were leaders. Pick a guy from each tribe, everyone a leader among you. I think it's Numbers 13. Um, They picked their 12 best guys. They go on a reconnaissance mission to check out the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Amorites and all the ites. And you know I'm going to say termites. I mean, I just got to say it. Uh, They were uh, strong people. They were technologically advanced. They had iron uh, chariots. I mean, they, uh, they were wealthy. They were intimidating. And they go check them out, and they come back, 
and they got a cluster of grapes that's so big it takes two guys to carry it. And they give the report and they say, that's yeah, a great land, it's the land of milk and honey, it's a, the abundance, the crops, it's unbelievable. But there are giants in the land, and there was a literal race of giants. And 10 of the 12 said to the people, there are giants in the land, and we can't take these guys. But Joshua and Caleb said, the Lord God Almighty will fight for us. What do you mean we can't take them? The Lord will fight for us. But the 10 discouraged the people. And because of the unbelief of the 10, the nation had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and everybody over 20 was going to die. So go, and, and the 10 guys were, were killed. Now, fast forward 40 years. Oh, before you do that, go back to that situation. So you had little boys standing around who were four, five, six, seven, right? In Deuteronomy, they're 44, 45, 46, 47. Now they're the dads. They're the grandpas. And God's talking to those guys. That's why they said, the Lord didn't make this covenant at Horeb with our fathers, but with us, with those of us who are alive here today. It doesn't matter how your father lived. It doesn't matter the choices your father made. God does not punish. So there was a NASCAR driver last week that got fired because his father, 30 years ago, said the N-word. And they canned, that's against Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 24. You can't do that, God said. Each man is responsible for his own life and for his own heart. So what happened? Oh, and then he gets into the Ten Commandments. Verse 6, I'm the Lord God. There, there's the preamble. I'm the, just like Exodus. I'm the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 7, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Next commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. I'm not going to read all of them, but there's the Ten Commandments. But in Deuteronomy 4, you got what happened at Horeb. You were just talking about Horeb at lunch today, weren't you? No. It's kind of fascinating stuff. Let's take a quick look. You know why we ought to take a quick look? Because this is foundational stuff that God gave them so that he could bless them and their families and they didn't do it. God doesn't want us going off the rails. God's not a killjoy. He's not against us. He's a good God. We mentioned last week that uh, the word law, Torah, and for some reason, Mary, listen, she edits, she edits these things. It's half the time, I don't know what I said. And she said, why did you say Torah? I said, Torah. She said, yeah. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. I don't know. I, I don't know why I said Torah. Uh, Torah. Torah means law. 
it's the idea, not so much of a legal code, but the wisdom and the instruction that a good father gives to his kids. Hey guys, I got these ten, ten things I want to want to show you because I want you to have a good life, and I want you to know God's peace and God's favor. Now, son, no, no, don't go that way. No, Proverbs one. Don't go hang out with those those peers. Don't go hang out with that gang. They don't know what they're doing. They're fools. That's Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1 deals with gangs. Proverbs 1 deals with peer pressure. It says, no, my son, listen to me. I'm for you. I got some miles on my tires that you don't have. And I made some mistakes. Let Let me share them with you. Okay, that's what's going on here. Uh, So, let's look at uh, Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. We'll just jump into it. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call on him? What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen And they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Watch this, 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountains burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens. Think Mount St. Uh, Helens about uh, a million times over. It was the glory, it was the power, it was the presence of Almighty God. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, when people are in the presence of God, they go right flat on their face. Isaiah said, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm dead. I'm a dead man. (laughs) Yeah. That's what happened here. Hey, don't forget Horeb, guys. Don't forget it. You saw the glory and the majesty. That's a God to be feared. You ought to be in awe of him. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. (laughs) What's the second commandment? You shall make no graven image. God is spirit. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words. You saw no form, only a voice. So he has declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on the two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might perform them in the land where you were going over to possess it. Uh, Look at verse 39. Know therefore today, and take it to your heart, that the Lord... He is God in heaven above, and on the earth below, there is no other. 
So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, that you may live long in the land which your Lord your God has given you for all time. He's for them. He wants to bless them. He wants them to have a good life. So let me give you three principles out of Deuteronomy 4. Number one, the Ten Commandments exist, and they have supreme authority. The Ten Commandments exist. They're for today. And they have supreme authority. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give you, I'm going to give them to you, then I'm going to come back and work my way through. Second, command, uh, second principle. The Ten Commandments have been willfully set aside and put in storage in our day. You put things in storage when they are of no further use to you. We think the Ten Commandments, as a culture, we think they are of no use to our modern civilization. Three, in fact, the Ten Commandments are the bedrock and foundation for right and godly living. In fact, the Ten Commandments are bedrock and the foundation for right and godly living. So, let's go back to the first one. The Ten Commandments exist and they have supreme authority. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Going back to last week, the Ten Commandments are the gold standard of all law and ethics. If you read Blackstone's commentaries, uh, that's what Lincoln read to become an attorney. They get a set of, most guys, they, didn't, they really didn't have but a handful of well, law schools. So you'd read Blackstone's commentaries. And I was looking at Blackstone's stuff last week. Roots it all in Scripture. Roots it all in the Ten Commandments. The revelation of God Almighty. Um, how did we get these Ten Commandments? They were at the mountain. They saw the glory of God. They saw no form, but God spoke. Um, and they were thankful that they lived through it. Because we're sinners and He's God. Holy, holy, holy. Did you catch that in 39? Note therefore today, take it to your heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. So I was thinking yesterday, I was looking at this passage, I'm working on it, and I thought, wait a minute. I'm hearing this phrase. There is no God but Allah. Hmm. 
And I thought, I'm going to look that up and see where that is in the Quran. So I got on the search engine, there is no God but Allah. I was kind of shocked by what came up. There was a bunch of stuff, but right at the top was an article by a Harvard PhD on Barack Obama's wedding ring. I, I thought, how'd they get in there? And I'm looking at it, and I scroll down, and they got all these pictures, and they got all this, and you know, and uh, 18 pictures that go back to when he was a student at Occidental College. And then they got this scholar in Middle Eastern languages and another guy and another guy. And then they're showing what's written on this ring. It's his wedding ring. He had it before he was married, but he's had it since he was in college. It says there is no God but Allah. Don't send me emails. I'm just telling you what I read, and it was I'm not, I'm not making a political statement. You could see it. You could see the script. You could see this. 18 photos. Just saying. When somebody says there's a, they're a Christian, you got a wedding ring? Some of you guys have inscriptions. You know what's on that ring. You're not ignorant of what's on that ring. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no gods competing with me. I am the Lord God Almighty, and there is no other God. No God. Yet, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. Man, are we good at idols or what? We're always coming up with idols. An idol is anything in your life that takes precedent over the Lord God Almighty. You shall have no other gods. So here's a little twofold test. What do you love? What do you love? And what do you trust? What do you trust? What do you love? What do you trust? They asked Jesus, we looked at it last week in Matthew 22. What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot love God and money. You can't split your heart. It's one or the other. First Timothy 6 says, those who want to get rich fall into a snare and a trap and a temptation that has snared many. 
not just money. It could be anything. I mean, look at Solomon's life. Solomon had God appear to him twice. But what happened to him? He started loving the women. He started loving the stuff. Started loving the... uh, The good life turned his heart. Marries a woman he shouldn't have married. Oh, yeah, he built the temple for the Lord. took him seven years. But then he built his own house, and it took him almost double. It's kind of a tip. It's a little bit of a tip. You build the house of God, and then it takes twice as long to build your house. And then he marries this chick and who was a non-believer, and it was clear he wasn't supposed to do that because she brought her idols. We said this last week. The problem with multiculturalism Oh, you're against multiculturalism? It has nothing to do with race. It has to do with the fact that every culture has gods. And there was one God. This is eternal life, John 17, that they may know thee, the, own, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Okay. Second principle. The Ten Commandments had been woefully set aside and put in storage. They are no use to our modern civilization. Uh, By the way, I came across a couple articles this week. Uh, Sweden had an election last week, but September 10th, this comes from Robert Spencer, the... uh, He's got a think tank at Princeton. Headline is Sweden, uh, colon, Muslim politician from leftist ruling party says Islamic rules are more important than Swedish rules. And you've got a big time problem in Sweden right now. And this is nothing new. I happened to catch three minutes on the BBC the other night. I didn't even know I could get the BBC. But I'm scrolling around to see what college football game I'm missing. And it says Sweden, BBC, and there's this, this guy's really honing in on this lady. She's some kind of big-time official in the government. I didn't get who she was. But he is asking specifically about the difficulties and why are things shifting in Sweden? Why is there a problem? And she is hemming and hawing and, and politically correct and not wanting to say, not wanting to say, oh, everybody, there's an elephant in the room. And finally she said, well, these, these citizens have brought with them beliefs that we historically have not shared. And who might those citizens be? They're young Muslim men who believe in Sharia law and have been taught Sharia law that it's okay to rape someone who is not a Muslim woman. Here's another one. Saudi Sharia court sentences gang rape victim to 200 lashes. The victim. Why? Because she was not accompanied by a male. And so it was her fault. 200 lashes. The victim.
You guys still there? I'm processing. I quoted last week from Irwin Lutzer's book, Exploding the Myths That Could Destroy America. He wrote it in 86. You read it now, it's uh, prophetic. I wanted to start right here. He's talking about humanism, and there's a good type of humanism, and you can study humanities in college and all that, and you know, okay, but words change. So now we got humanism. He says this. Contemporary humanism traces its origin to the Renaissance, not the Reformation, the Renaissance, where there was a revival of classical learning and with it a great emphasis on man's part of the world. Although this in itself is not wrong, as humanism progressed, it diminished the need for God in the minds of men. From this came atheistic or secular humanism as expounded in the Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2. In one sense, secular humanism has been around throughout the history of philosophy as far back as 400 BC when this statement was made, man is the measure of all things. That's humanism. He says, perhaps the best definition of secular humanism was given by Sir Julian Huxley, one of the founders of the American Humanist Association. Because, see, this is what we're dealing with now. Uh, Huxley said, I use the word humanist to mean someone who believes that man is just as much a natural phenomenon as an animal or a plant, that his body, mind, and soul were not supernaturally created but are products of evolution, and that he is not under the control or guidance of any supernatural being or beings but has to rely on himself and his own power. Um, he goes on and says, in this book, we'll the humanism term will refer to the beliefs explained in the humanist manifesto and the secular humanist declaration. These views known as secular humanism, they're based on several things. Number one, an atheistic view of the world, a belief that evolution operating independently of any transcendent powers accounts for life as we know it. One author says, we can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal domination are both illusionary and harmful. Another building block of secular humanism is moral relativism. I can't read too much of this because it will take too long. Um, Basically, what he was saying in 86 is, is that secular humanism has pretty much taken over. It's assumed. It's assumed. And our children are taught it. This is worth reading. He has a little thing here called the evolutionist and God. Behind the evolution-creation controversy is modern man's well-known aversion towards belief in God. Modern man's well-known aversion to belief in God. To him, any theory, preposterous as it may be, is more gladly accepted than belief in a creator. That life was seeded here by other planetary beings or by spirits that roam primeval oceans, it is more inviting 
to believe that than a personal God exists. And you'd be surprised how many of those high-level guys, you read their, you know, their books are out there. That, that's their theory. It's Dawkins' theory. As DMS Watson, an evolutionist, candidly admits, evolution is a theory universally accepted not because it can be proven by logically coherent evidence to be true. I'm going to read that again. It's a theory, and this is a guy who is one. It's a theory universally accepted not because it can be proven by logically coherent. I'm going to back up. Um, I'm going to read that again. They say in Proverbs 12, 9, it says, the third time is the charm. <laughs> Actually, I just added to the word of God, but I was desperate. I needed some kind of help here. Let's see if I can get this right. DMS Watson, an evolutionist, candidly admits it is a theory universally accepted, not because it can be proven by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. Julian Huxley was once on a television program in which he responded to the question of why evolution was so readily accepted. He admitted, the reason we accepted Darwinianism, even without proof, is because we didn't want God to interfere with our sexual mores. The real reason modern man does not want to believe in God is that he wants no interference from the Creator. He admitted it. They want to be their own gods. Now, these are unbelievers. This stuff, um, we're surrounded by this. This has filtered its way into the church. It's filtered its way into evangelical colleges. What was the first point? The Ten Commandments exist and they have supreme authority. It would be astonishing for you to know how many Christian colleges you send your kids to Christian colleges don't believe the book of Genesis in the opening chapters on creation. I mean, they just flat out don't believe it. They came up with something called theistic evolution. And Wayne Grudem, who I quoted last week, along with J.P. Moreland and a bunch of other guys, they came out with a book like that called Theistic Evolution and Why It's Not True. Why do they have to come out with a book? Because it's pervasive in evangelical Christianity that Adam and Eve didn't exist. They weren't historical figures. Martin Lloyd-Jones did a little book. The original title was Why Does God Allow Suffering? Uh, the original title was Why Does God Allow War? They switched it over to Why Does God Allow Suffering? And... <clears throat> He is talking about the mysteries, the mystery of God's ways. Uh, God told us up front we wouldn't understand him. He said in Isaiah 55, 8, sometimes God baffles us. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. God baffles us. He confuses us. Sometimes he doesn't make sense to us. And Lloyd-Jones is talking about suffering, and when we see 
suffering in the lives of other people. And he's preaching this in 1938. They had just declared war. They're going back to war against Germany. They had just lost a whole generation of young men in World War I. People had suffered, lost sons. I mean, the whole nation's reeling, which is why Chamberlain kept trying to get peace with Hitler. And now they're going back into it. And people begin to question God, believers, and how could you let this happen? And, you know, then all these, here's what he says. This is under the heading, the arrogance displayed in this attitude towards God. He says, we do not hesitate to assume and to take it for granted that we are capable of understanding everything that God does. That's a mistake. We have such confidence in ourselves and in our own minds and understanding and opinions that we question and query God's actions in precisely the same way as we question the actions of a fellow human being. We feel and we believe that we know what is right and what is best. Our self-confidence is endless and boundless, and we refuse to believe that anything can possibly be beyond the reach and grasp of our minds and intellects. This surely is the impertinent implication in all our questions and in all our expressions of doubt towards God. God is to conform to our ideas, and he is to do what we believe he should do. But the arrogance does not stop there. As we have seen, it does not hesitate to condemn God's actions and to say that they are quite wrong and quite indefensible. So you got evangelical teaching going on right now that reject the substitutionary atonement because they call God the Father a child abuser. That's in the church. That's astonishing. I'll tell you a recent idol in evangelicalism. It's the idol of no hell. You know how many people? Hey, hell is tough. I mean, R.C. Sproul said he could only think about hell about 90 seconds. And that was it. It's so horrible. Yet Jesus spoke of hell twice as much as he spoke of heaven. If there's no hell, why did Jesus have to come and die? For our sin and take the wrath of God upon him. But you see, this is where we think... Well, that's not right. How could God do this? How could... Okay. He goes on. It does not hesitate to condemn God's actions and to say they are quite wrong, quite indefensible. In other words, we and our ideas are the standard and the judges. We are the Ten Commandments. We are the ultimate court of appeal and our ideas of right and wrong, just and unjust, fair and unfair are the last word. We do not hesitate to express our opinion about God and to judge his actions. This is what the children of Israel were constantly doing. He goes on and he says, In matters like this, he said, I'm not saying that we must not think and reason in connection with religion, with our faith, or that I'm arguing that Christianity is irrational. We are meant to think and to reason and to grasp the truth. But... That does not mean our minds are equal to the mind of God or that we can claim equality and demand a full understanding of everything. 
Still less does it mean that morally and spiritually we are in a position to question and query God's motives and to pass judgment upon his character as expressed in his actions. Yet that is precisely what men do. Failing to understand the actions, they proceed to attack and to question the very character of God. Our pride of intellect and understanding leads us in reality to regard ourselves as gods. So we become an idol. We become a god. It's not that it's not that difficult things aren't in the scriptures. Hard things aren't in the scriptures. It's it's not that hey, bad things do happen to God's people. You've heard of the book written by Rabbi, Rabbi Kushner when bad things happen to good people. And his explanation, this Jewish rabbi, is that we've been told God's all-powerful, but actually he isn't. He wishes he could change things, but he doesn't have the power. So you can't blame him. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. It's that he is God. He is good. His ways are not our ways. But he has this amazing ability to take the worst things that ever happened to us. He can even take evil and he can turn it for our good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. All things aren't good. Rape's not good. Bankruptcy's not good. Divorce isn't good. Cancer's not good. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The worst thing that ever happens, he will turn it in some way, shape, or form for your good and to give you a better life than you would have had without it. Now, can I explain that any further? No. But there are guys in this room that have experienced that already in their lives. Third, um, third principle was this. In fact, the Ten Commandments are bedrock and foundation for right and godly living. That would be Romans 8.28. Um, God's a good God. He wants to bless us. He wants to favor us. And so what does he do? He says he loves us. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He was a redeemer. He was a rescuer. He was a savior. I got a text from three guys this afternoon. I've known for a long time. They've got a company. They're getting going. And uh, I mean, they were, they were about going over the cliff. They were good. I mean, I mean, they were days away from shutting down. And I got a text. The manna just came in. I'd read it to you, but my phone's in the car. Manna just came in. We're rescued. Psalm 50, 15. Calling me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. 
He'll scare you to death sometimes. But see, it's going to come down to who do you love and who do you trust? You going to trust me in this? I, I want to finish with this. Um, So we're in the Old Testament, and we're talking about what God did on the mount. We're talking about that God gave the Ten Commandments. And we're talking about the fact that the Ten Commandments is the gold standard and is based in God's character. I, I want to finish by... Refreshing our minds and asking the question, who is this God? Our God is one, per, is one God expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I love this. John 5. You guys good for 10 more minutes? What are you going to do? Go home and watch darts? <laughs> Have you seen darts on TV? On that sports channel? You got these overweight <coughs> European guys, white guys, in these Coliseums, there are thousands of people, and they're they're knocking beer back like left and right. And, and these guys, they got beer guts, they're you know, you know, you know and, and they got that dartboard. Just that dart. You got thousands of people in there, and these guys go, and they I never played darts in my life, but you know, there's a reason they got all those little and those guys hit them, those little Three of them. I watched it the other night, and Mary came in and watched it with me. We don't have much of a life right now, obviously. It was kind of fascinating. I may go home and watch darts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, watch this. We're on the home stretch. John 5.45, uh, you know, in 39, he's talking to the religious leaders. You search the scriptures because you think in them, I'm in 5.39 of John. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. What was the problem with the religious leaders of Israel? They loved the law. They loved the law. They loved the commentaries on the law. They were nitpicking religious bureaucrats who wouldn't take care of their own parents. I mean, nobody got stronger treatment from Jesus than these guys. Oh, they had the law, but they didn't love their neighbors as themselves. They were hell on wheels to deal with and to live with. So Jesus is going after him. You go down, go down to 45. Do not think that I will 
accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses. As he's going after them, the one they vilify is Moses. He was their guy. They all had jerseys with Moses on the back. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That's great stuff. I'll tell you why it's great. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And who is that God? He's Father, He's Son, and He's Holy Spirit. The Trinity, you say, yeah, that's, that's kind of mystifying. Yeah. But there's some facts about the Trinity. If I had a whiteboard, used to have blackboards, now they're whiteboards, technological advancement. I would put a circle, small circle in the middle. Then up here, I would put Father. Over here, I would put Son. Over here, I would put Holy Spirit. Um, so I got this little circle in the middle, and in that, it would say God. Up here, you have the Father. I would draw a line, and, and then on the line, I would have Father is God. The Father is God. Then I would go over to the Son, Jesus, and I would connect the line and write the word is. The Son is God. And then you go to the Holy Spirit, the, the, the Spirit is God. Then I go back to the Father, and I draw a line from the Father to Jesus. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They're one God expressed in three persons. And they're totally and fully God. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, Lagos, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, watch this, was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now watch this. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The agent in the, of the Trinity who created was Jesus. Go to Colossians 1, 13. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Jesus is just not New Testament, guys. Jesus is God. I'll just throw this in. In the creation account, it says, let us make man in our own image. Up until then, it's been singular, now it's plural. Who's us? Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, how do you know that? Because Scripture interpret, interprets Scripture. Okay. Colossians 1.13. For he, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Uh, God the Father transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean Jesus was born. 
there was a time when Jesus wasn't God. It's what's called primogeniture. Uh, you remember from your reading and movies and all that, it used to be that the firstborn son got everything in the will, right? They got the whole thing. Winston Churchill didn't have much because his dad didn't have much because his dad wasn't the firstborn son. It means he is, it means he owns creation. Watch what it says next. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's why you don't have to worry about this lawlessness, this anarchy. This He holds it together. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan for the ages, for your life, for this nation, for your kids. And he is the glue, and he is the adhesive that holds your life together. And all things. Hebrews 1, when we read of God in the Old Testament, what I'm trying to say to you is that that's Jesus. It's the Father, it's the Son, and it's the Spirit. Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's the gospel. Oh, and there's law. We're right back to the law. And you know what Hebrews is all about? Jesus fulfilled the law on every point. Because we can't keep the law. You had the civil law. You had the ceremonial. You got moral law. We can't keep it. But what did Jesus do? He made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And by the way, he lives forever to make intercession for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The Old Testament drives us to Jesus. The Ten Commandments are good. The nation can go nuts. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you hold all things together. Thank you for your moral excellence. Thank you for redemption in Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that you not only forgive our sins, you forget our sins and you cast them into the deepest part of the sea. Thank you that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. Thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Thank you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We glory in your glory. Of all men on the earth, we are most blessed because we name the name of Jesus and we bow the knee now to him. He's Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He's the mighty God. In his name we pray, amen.